Welcome to the Bethel Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Chris Fallaton. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ibethel.org. Let's pray, shall we? Holy Spirit, we just thank you for what you're doing in our midst, and we pray, God, that you would move on us, that, Lord, that literally that each of our homes would become places for the presence of God to both rest and work. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, I've talked about these houses of Acts, and um, let me just get my right notes here. Uh, how many of you ever seen the movie, uh, the movie, the... Uh, <laughs> the <laughs> The Incredibles. How many have seen the movie The Incredibles? I've never seen it. But I heard it's awesome. It's a, it's a Disney movie about these superheroes, right? That all live in one house, this superhero family, and they want to they wanna change the world, and there's an enemy called Syndrome who plots against them. And I was, last week I was talking about the fact that God has called us to to actually have houses of Acts. And by the way, there was two houses, you know, in the book of Acts, there was two houses where miracles, wonders, and signs happen, where angels visit them. And we were, we were talking last week about the house of Simon uh, the, the Tanner by the sea at Joppa. And also there was the house of John Mark's house where miracles and wonders and signs happen, where angels were so common in, Mark, in John Mark's house that when Peter got released from prison and knocked on the door, they thought that it was P- Peter's angel. <laughs> and so I started thinking about how many of you know that Jesus didn't say, these signs will follow the apostles who believe. These signs will follow the prophets believe, who believe. He said, these signs will follow those who believe. And the previous verse says, it's in Mark 16. It says this, um, those who believe and are baptized shall be saved. The next verse, and these are the signs that follow those who believe. They'll cast out demons, they'll heal the sick, they'll, they'll, they'll pick up serpents and they shall not be harmed, they'll drink deadly things and shall not harm them. Listen, the previous verse says, he who, is, he, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. These are the signs of those who believe. I love to be in non-charismatic circles and read that verse and say, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. These are the signs of those who believe. And read the signs and say, is there enough evidence in heaven to convict you of being a Christian? <laughs> I know there's a lot more verses than that in the Bible, but I just like to stir people up. Have you noticed? I'm sure you're surprised. <laughs> and so I have this vision that we would have, you know, that, we, that every neighborhood would have like watchmen on the wall who actually move in miracles and signs and wonders. People come into your house sick, they leave healed. They come in with a destroyed marriage and they leave reconciled. They, they come in demonized and they leave free. Like what would happen if every house that is represented by Bethel Church was actually a house of acts? I found this verse in the book of Nehemiah. I love this verse and it talks about that Nehemiah was rebuilding the walls. And the way that he did it is he assigned families to certain parts of the wall. That's how they got the wall done. And so he, like he would assign the Valentin family, okay, you, you repair this part of the wall. Uh, you, the Johnsons, you repair this wall, the wall. The Joneses, the Smiths, you get the idea. Like you were assigned to repair just this part of the wall. And in, in chapter three of Nehemiah, 
it says that he assigned this particular family to the, to this, to the part of the wall where the house of the mighty men was. <laughs> you know that David had like 600 mighty men, but he had like 33 famous ones. And it says that, that one man was as good as a thousand men. The least of them were as good as a thousand men. How would it be if the mighty men, 33 mighty men, all living in the neighborhood, down, in, a, in a house down the street from you in your neighborhood? That's neighborhood watch on steroids. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what if we were the superheroes disguising ourselves as mere people? <laughs> Sent out to change the world. Resisted by syndrome but enlisted by angels. That's what I'm doing. So this morning, I want to talk about the attributes, the attributes of the House of Acts. The three most prominent attributes of history makers, follow me, are courage, persistence, and God's faith for others. Courage, persistence, and God's faith for others. And so I want to talk first about courage. And if you turn to Joshua chapter 1, we're going to, talk, we're going to read um, the whole entire book of Joshua. No, I'm going to read part of Joshua 1. And I want to kind of set up for you what's happening in the book of Joshua. God encountered Moses at a burning bush. You remember this? Or we should say Moses encountered God because I'm sure God was in his life long before he knew it. And Moses encounters God. He hears the audible voice of God. I've seen the oppression of my people and I send you Moses to deliver my people. Do you remember this? And the Bible goes on to say that Moses became a friend of God. He spoke to God. In fact, in, think in the Hebrew, it's mouth to mouth or face to face. He saw wonders and signs and miracles. His staff, remember he threw down a staff and became a snake. You remember all the miracles that, that Moses did to release the people of God from the Egyptians. Do you remember all this? And you know, he came before Pharaoh with his staff and he threw it down. It became a snake and it ate the Pharaoh's Egyptian uh, uh, magician's snakes. And, and he, he caused you know, all kinds of famine. He, he parted the Red Sea with his staff. I mean, this is Moses, the man who's the most famous man in the history of the world at the time. A man who speaks to God face to face. A man who's a friend of God. A man who God commissioned him audibly from a bush. And this man could not take the people of God into the promised land. <laughs> and so God encounters, Mo, uh, encounters Joshua in verse 1. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot shall tread, I have given to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness to this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea, towards the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I've been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you, but be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land, which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Don't turn from the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. 
This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I love this chapter, but we, let's put it in context. God is saying to Joshua, like I was with Moses, I'll be with you. And I'm thinking, um, Moses died before he fulfilled his mission. And you're going to be with me the same way. I don't know if that's good or bad. And how many understand that God empowers Moses to bring the people into the promised land, and Moses can't get the people in the promised land, and here Joshua, his servant, is commissioned to take the people into their promised land. I want to point out a few things. The first one is, is that Joshua is, Joshua's success, according to God, is measured by the fact that the people get what God promised them. So God says to Joshua, I promise them a promised land. And you are going to get them in their promised land, and you are going to make your way successful. And how are we going to know that you're successful? By the fact that you make everyone else's dreams come true. This is your commission, Joshua. This is your mission, that you would be strong and courageous, and you would be successful. What does success look like? That you take the people and you give them the promises that I told them that they should have. Now, before we go on, I want to say this, that why couldn't Moses take the people in the promised land? Do you remember in the New Testament when Jesus was out up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Who was up there? Moses and Elijah. Why wasn't it like Abraham, the father of faith, or Enoch, he walked with God and was no more? Or how about David, who was called the man after God's heart? Why was, why was it Moses and Elijah? Because how many know that when they were up on, the, when they were up on that mountain, and Peter, James, and John were there. You know, if there was Ringo, it'd be a band, right? <laughs> and Peter says, I think we should build three churches, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. Do you remember what happened? A voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, what? Listen to him. How many know that Jesus, the, the law and the prophets were until John, but how many know that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets? Why were, why were Moses and Elijah up on the Mount Transfiguration? Because Moses represented the law and Elijah the prophets. How many know Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets? How come Moses couldn't go into the promised land, but a guy named Joshua had to take them? How many know the name Joshua, the Hebrew name Joshua, is the Greek name Jesus? That Moses, the law, couldn't take them into the promised land because the law can never get you in the promised land. It always, it can get you out of Egypt, but it can't get you in the promised land. How many know that they, they crossed, the children of Israel, they came out of Egypt, and they crossed, quote, the Red Sea. Hebrews says that they were baptized into the Red Sea, into the blood of Jesus. The Hebrew writer said that what happened to them was a shadow, a type of what God's doing in us, in the spirit. In other words, first the natural, then the spiritual. How many understand that, that God was writing the gospel into the sands of Moses and Joshua? Moses took them and he baptized them into the Red Sea. And how many know when you come out of Egypt, you come out of your old man, you get baptized into Jesus' blood. 
But how many know there's another baptism coming? And a man named Joshua, Jesus, takes them across the Jordan River. How many know when they crossed the Red Sea, they crossed on dry land, but when they crossed the Jordan River, the priests had to get wet in the river. How many know when you receive Jesus Christ, there's a river? It's, gonna, it's coming from your where? Innermost being. Are you with me? And you cross the Jordan River, you get baptized in the second baptism, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and then you start heading for your promised land. And do you know there was three cities they had to cross before they had to pass through before they got to the promised land? The first one was called Adam. The name of the city was Adam. Before you get into your promised land, you have to, let, you have to leave your old man behind. You have to leave Adam behind. The second city they had to cross through, they had to pass through before they could get to their promised land, was called S-I-N, Sin. They actually had to pass through a city called Sin. Before you can get to your promised land, you have to leave your sin nature behind. And the last city they passed through before they came into the promised land was a city called Gilgal, and it meant to be circumcised of heart. And how many know, before you can go into the promised land, you have to have a new heart? How many know that the Lord was writing the Gospels into the sands of time? Moses couldn't take them into the promised land because the law never takes you into the promised land. It can get you out of Egypt, but it can't deliver you into the promised land. It was better than your clout. No, it's all right, too late. God said to, to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Three times he exhorts them, be strong and courageous. Have you ever, has anyone ever said, be strong? Does it make you strong? You're like, no, it just makes me aware how fearful I am. Yeah. <laughs> I propose that most people never actually come into their destiny because they let the dogs of doom that stand at the doors of destiny influence their purpose. And I'd, I'd suggest that, that your destiny is guarded by a dog of fear. As a matter of fact, I don't think you can come into your destiny unless you experience fear before you get to your destiny. Now, there's a lot of people there wearing these shirts that say fearless or fear, you know, no fear. And I'm like, I don't think that most people that come into their destiny actually get rid of fear. I think they embrace courage. And I think there's a huge difference between being fearless and being courageous. I think, fear, I think courageous means that fear has said its prayers, and you say to fear, you will not tell me what to do. I think that often the fact that we actually experience anxiety is the reason we know we're actually going the right direction. <laughs> I remember in, we had a home group and youth group at my house two different nights, and uh, for 17 years. And for 15 years, every night before the home group or the youth group people would get there, I'd have the runs. And I'd be in the bathroom and Kathy would have to greet them and I'd say, I'll be out in a minute. And I don't think I ever made a home group on time or a youth group on time. And I'd be so anxious, I would have the runs for 15 years. And I'd be on the toilet thinking to myself, why do I have such a love-hate relationship with my destiny? <laughs> I have people come to me all the time. They're like, you know, I, I'd love to do this thing, but every time I do it, I have anxiety, and I just don't know what's wrong. I've been doing it for three weeks, and it's still there. 
How long should I do it? Four. What if I still have it after four? Do it five. Well, how long should I do it? Until it goes away. What if it doesn't go away? Then just keep doing it. Do it till you die. I'm I'm simply saying, you know, (laughs) last week I preached on Sunday morning and I hadn't preached for three weeks because I had a hernia operation. It took me out a couple weeks. Then we had, we had, uh, then we had Christmas. And so I hadn't taught or preached or really been in a public meeting in three weeks. And, you know, and I, I usually teach at least four times a week. So, you know, I think you get in a mode and you don't think about it, right? You just, it becomes like you're just in a mode and you do what you do. And somebody, sometimes people go, well, how do you do that? And you're like, I, I actually don't think about it. I just do it. But then you stop doing it and you realize how much pressure it is to get it right. And I woke up Saturday morning and I, what I usually do is, you know, it's my custom to, if I'm preaching here, I usually, like the day before, I'll just be praying into it. Sometimes I'll have a, uh, you know, a theme going on for months. But if I don't, I'm Sunday, Saturday morning is my morning, like, okay, connect. Okay, Lord, what are we doing? Well, I woke up early, probably five, six o'clock in the morning, and I was just praying into the Lord, what are we doing this week? And instead of just getting a word for people, I was trying to overcome this incredible anxiety. I was having like really high levels of anxiety just about being in front of, of y'all. And finally, Kathy woke up Saturday morning and I said, can you pray for me? And she's like, what's going on? I said, I said well, I'm trying to prepare, but I have all this anxiety about preaching. And she's like, she does what she does, you know? She's been with me since she was 12 years old. And she's like, you can do this, you know, you're, you're great at this. This is what you're called to do. And I'm like, thank you, but the anxiety's still there. <laughs> and she prayed for me, and honestly, it didn't lift. And so Sunday morning, I got up at 5, have to be here at 7, got up at 5, I had prepared the message the day before. And, and I got up, and I had really high levels of anxiety. And I, was, I haven't had anxiety for years, and, and especially over preaching. And I knew Eric was home, and I'm like, I'm going to call Eric and see if he can do Sunday morning. And, and I, so I, I, just, I just, laying, just laying there thinking, and every time I pictured myself preaching, I'd picture having an anxiety attack. And I'm like, I can't do this. And so I prayed, and I said to God, I, I, I want you to, I, maybe I should have Eric do this. And he said to me, you need to put your big boy pants on. <laughs> what he said to me. People talk to me, you know, like people like, oh, the Lord's always so kind to me, like nibbles on my ear. I mean, like, he's like, I, I don't know. Do you guys ever get the woodshed? Like, I don't know why I get the woodshed. I'm like, and the Lord said to me, I've given you a word and you need to put your big boy pants on and get out there and do what I told you to do. That's what he said to me. I said, Lord, I, I feel nervous. He said, I don't care that you're nervous. Just go and do what I told you to do, boy. So Sunday morning, the first service, I got up, I was really nervous, and I started preaching, and, and I was awesome. <laughs> I, I don't know if I was awesome, but you know what I mean? I got it done. I got through it. And second service was easier, and third easier, and fourth easier. But my point is, is that uh, sometimes we just have to do it. Sometimes you're like, I'm so afraid, I'm terrified. It's like, well, that's how you know that you're supposed to be doing this, that you're terrified, that this scares the hell out of you because you shouldn't have hell in you. 
And sometimes I think we just have to, we just have to come to grips with like, this isn't going to go away until it goes away. But that doesn't, you know, navigate your, your, your destiny. You know, it's like, God can't be in this because I don't feel it. Well, be led by the spirit. Just do what you were told to do. Put your big girl pants on and get up there and do what you're told to do. What if it goes wrong? Did you obey? Were you, did you do your best? Did you do your best? If you did your best, then he'll do his best. I think that fear is the most socially accepted sin in the, in the church. Listen, if I said to you, what would you do if you're 10 times bolder? If it's anything besides what you're doing, you've been reduced. If there's one thing you would be doing if you weren't afraid, it means fear has already influenced your destiny. And let me say this, because your destiny is so entwined in others' destiny, that if you don't do what you do, they can't do what they do. Do you know that God told 1.5 million people approximately that they were going to go into a promised land? Do you know how many went in? Two. And it wasn't because they had a bad word, it's because they couldn't find courage to do what God told them to do. There's a lot of folks running around like, those guys are false prophets. They gave me a word. Well, did you do anything about it? Some people, are, they're waiting for the stars to line up. Like, when the stars line up. <laughs> Buddy, they ain't lining up. This isn't the age of Aquarius. <laughs> this is the church. The only way the stars line up is when you do what you're supposed to be doing. I'm telling you the truth. Someone's got to. Let's go to 1 Samuel 17. You know what this is, right? The story of David and Goliath. You cannot preach on courage and not do this chapter. Verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Aztec in Ephes Damon. Now, I'm not going to do a Hebrew word study. I barely know English. <laughs> but Soko and Aztec means between a rock and a hard place, and Ephes Damon means on the edge of blood. You know why David walked in miracles? Because he had no other choice. He put himself between a rock and a hard place, right on the edge of blood. And if God didn't come through, he's going to die. Everybody wants to do miracles, but nobody wants to take a risk. I don't know about you, but I want to be a miracle worker for you, but I don't want to actually need one. Can I get an amen? Can we have some honesty out there? People watching by Bethel TV, like you, we, all, we all want to like, I'd love to see a miracle. I just don't want to need one. But how many of you know, you want to see a miracle working God? Get yourself in a place between a rock and a hard place, right on the edge of blood. And if God, and if God doesn't come through, you're going to die. How many of you know, you're all going to die anyway. Now, if I said, if you're terminal, stand up. You should all stand up. You're all going to die. You guys watching by Bethel TV, you're dead. You're all going to die. You're all terminal. The question is, are you really going to live? See, that's the question. You don't get to decide if you're going to die once. You get to decide if you're going to die twice, but you don't get to decide if you're going to die once, right? You're all going to die. The question is, are you really going to live? I told the Lord, I said, when I get sick, like the doctor gives me like 30 days, I don't want to die of natural causes. 
I'm going to go like to Iraq or one of those places where they don't like Christians. And I'm going to preach the gospel in the street and then they can take me as a martyr and cut my head off. I don't want them to torture me though. Like that has to be like a deal. Like I don't want to torture me. Cut my head off. I don't, I don't really do pain very well. I'm a pretty, pretty big baby. And I said to the Lord, I'm going to be a martyr and I'm going to get a big old mansion in heaven. And he said to me, if you do that, we won't count it as martyrdom. We will call it stupid. <laughs> Verse four. <laughs> then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath. Goliath means arrogance or pride. From Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He was nine foot six. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze, 127 pounds. And he also had a bronze greaves on his legs and, bronze, and a bronze javelin between his shoulders and the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels. It weighed 15 pounds. And his shield bearer was in front of him. And he stood, verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of, the, of Israel, saying, Why do you come out to draw out in battle array? Am I not a Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, then we will become his servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will all become our servants. I love this passage. Have you ever had anyone ask you, are you under a covering? You're like, well, at night I am. <laughs> Has, you ever asked, has anyone ever asked you, like, are you under a covering? Like, do you have a covering? You're like, I don't know. I think I, do you have a spiritual covering? Oh, Holy Spirit? What is a spiritual covering? Well, Goliath prophesied it. If you send me a man and he kills me, we will all serve you. But if I kill him, we will all, you will all serve us. The point is, is that one man's victory becomes a corporate blessing. So he wins a victory and they all serve you. See, this is what it means to be under a covering. It means you follow somebody who's had a victory in God, and their personal victory becomes a corporate covering. How I many you know a lot of people are trying to have a personal victory? I mean, trying to, have a, trying to be a public covering, but they've never had a personal victory. I love this. In David shows up, 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 22. It says, Then David left his baggage in care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle to greet his brothers. David left his baggage with the baggage keeper and ran to the battle. First Samuel chapter 10, seven chapters earlier, it talks about King Saul. And when the prophet Samuel came to anoint Saul, it says, and Saul was hiding in his baggage. How many know God commissioned Saul to lead Israel, but Saul hid in his baggage and lost his anointing? David left his baggage with the baggage keeper and picked up the anointing. How many of you know, before you can kill your giant, you got to leave your baggage with the baggage keeper. A lot of people want to kill giants, but they're dragging around regret. They're dragging around, you know, disillusion. Well, God was supposed to, and he did it, and I was going to, and I was going to be, and that didn't work out, and my marriage went bad, and my, you know, my church and my pastor doesn't like me, and it's like, and there's the giant. How in the heck are you going to kill a giant when you're dragging around? This luggage, this baggage. You want to have a house of acts? You got to deal with your baggage. Well, you don't, know my, my, you, don't, you don't know my past, but I know your future. 
know, the devil's not afraid of your, your past. He's a, terrified of your future. Good point, Chris. Thank you for that. Nope, too late. Verse 25, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's coming up? Surely he's coming to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter. It's always about the woman. (laughs) And make his father's house great in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him according to his word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. He asked three times, by the way. Verse 28. Now Elib, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Elib's anger burned against David. And he said, Why have you come down here? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and your wickedness of heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. You know, before you can engage your giant, you usually have to fight your brothers. And by the way, David gets to the battlefield on the 40th day. You know what's been happening for 39 days? His brothers, three of them, are terrified. It says that all of Israel trembled with fear. You know, if you're in a crowd and you're all trembling, you don't want your kid brother to kill the thing you're afraid of. And I want to tell you something. Like, the crowd never takes on giants. What they do is make up reasons why you shouldn't, why you can't, why it can't be done. And then when a little guy breaks out of the crowd and kills a giant, it takes away all their excuses, and they begin to persecute the person who broke out of the crowd. What happens when somebody decides they want to be a virgin in the middle of a cesspool of a high school? They make fun of them. They tease them. They did. But what's the real problem? They're terrified of them. They're terrified that you have the same giant in your land that I have in my land, and you conquered yours, and I'm back here making reasons, excuses why I can't take on mine. Nobody likes a little kid who whips a giant. Then Saul, then Saul clothed David. Oh, verse 34. Then David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or bear came out and took a lamb from the flock and I went after him and attacked him and rescued him from his mouth and when he arose against me I seized him by the beard and struck him and killed him (laughs) your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God You just read this, this second, uh, first Samuel. I just love this book. You know, the, how many know, before you have a public victory, you have to have a private one? You know, a lot of people are like, I'd like to be, preach in front of thousands of people every day. Well, why don't you try preaching in front of five? I remember for five years, I went to the convalescent hospital every morning for five years and preached to the people in the convalescent hospital. And, you know, and, I, and there was about you know, 15 to 17, they would wheel out these, these mostly ladies, these old ladies. We would go from room to room and invite them, and then they would wheel them out. It was about 45 minutes long, and, and, and then we would, we would teach them, you know, preach to them. And, you know, and I, I was trying to find my style. You know, I was with Bill, and so you know, I tried Bill's style. Like, you share a verse, and you just go. 
And people are like, oh, he forgot his message. So, you know, I figured out after like three years, like that doesn't work for me. Like I share something in a... And, and Bill, you know, Bill, he reads the Bible and people are like, you know what Bill said? I said, that was actually Jesus Christ. He quoted word for word. Where did he get that? From the book of John. So I figured like that isn't working for me. So I was watching Jimmy Swagger. And Jimmy Swagger, you know, this is before his fall, but he'd just take the Bible and he would just walk back and forth and it's like, this is the sword of the Lord, you know, and he would just scream and shake his Bible. So like I was, I was testing on that in those five years. And so I'd go to the convalescent hospital and I'd start slow and then I'd, and I'd get up and I'd make my point. I'd shake my Bible and, and the Lord says to you today, you know, these 15 people, and then they'd pee. It's an absolutely true story. And then the nurses would come in every Sunday and they'd wheel out like 10 of my 15 congruents and then mop the floor and then I'd finish. And I'd prepare for hours and hours to preach to these 15 people who weren't, weren't even there. And I'm saying, you, you want to have a public victory you got to be faithful where nobody cares. you got to work it out where nobody cares. I'm not saying nobody cares about the older people. You know what I'm trying to say. I'm saying like David, nobody cares. If, how many of you know that if you have sheep, if you're a sheep herder, it's kind of like having a retail store, right? You know there's going to be some shrinkage, right? Some people are going to steal some stuff. Some things are going to break. You, the whole deal, you just factor it in. It's like 3%, we're going to lose 3% of our stock, and we just create a profit structure around it, right? If you're a shepherd, you know, some of your sheep are going to die. You know, you're going to have, you're going to have, you know, uh, enemies that are going to come in and take your sheep. And it's just, it's just part of shepherding, right? But not David. <laughs> David's like, no lion or bear is taking my sheep. <laughs> and it's just something about that. It's like, you know, David, just run. <laughs> He's like, no, he came and I saw him and he grabbed my sheep and I went on after him and I struck him. Then he came back after me, and I killed him with my bare hands. And I'm like, when you're doing stuff in private nobody cares about, now you're preparing for stuff in public that everybody cares about. What you do when no one's looking matters. Let me say it differently. What you do when you think no one's looking matters. Saul tries to dress David in his own armor. Of course, it says that David is ruddy. He's, he's kind of stocky, and Saul is a foot taller than anyone. He says, the Bible says he's, he's head and shoulders taller than any man in Israel. You can imagine what the armor was like. And, you know, it's, isn't it funny that people who don't or are terrified of a giant know how you should fight it? They actually criticize you for you doing it, even though they're terrified of doing it. I'm serious. I mean, it's the critics. There's two kinds of people. People who do stuff and people who critique the people who do the stuff. You know, if you, know, if you don't know how to kill a giant, shut up. If you don't want to do it yourself, then be quiet. And David's like, I got this rock. And I'm sure it's like, Saul's like, okay. 
And it's like, I, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm gonna, I, I like the rock. Okay. Well, at least we'll appease the giant for about 12 minutes after he eats you. Verse 41. Then the Philistine came and approached David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he was disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and handsome like me. <laughs> and the Philistine said to him, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine also said to David, You come to me and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted, this day the Lord will deliver your, you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give your dead bodies of the armies of Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hands. Oh, man, I just love that. Never negotiate with terrorists. The next verse, 48, says, Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came near to David, that David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. I want to say this, like, when you get anointed to do something, you break out of your fear, run to the battle, and don't think. Because how many of you know procrastination is the assassination of the revelation you had when you were anointed? You'll be running to the battlefield and you'll be calculating like, wow, he's bigger than I thought. Whoa, that's a big sword. That's, that's a big spear. Oh, he's got a little guy in front of him. Like, don't think. Run. Run. I wrote this. The thing is, the longer you avoid the problem, the bigger the monster grows to until, some, until it finally eats you. The best, best way to beat it is while it's still a baby monster. It's best to beat it while it's still a baby monster. <laughs> Have you ever had something in your life you're like, someday I'm going I'm I'm to overcome that. I'm going to break that thing. I'm going to stop that pornography thing. I'm going to stop that thing. I'm going to change this. I'm going to do that. And you just keep talking about it. And you think something's going to change, and I'm going to do that. I propose to you that while you're waiting, the monster, which was once a baby monster, is now a big monster. <laughs> and if you let it grow big enough, it's going to eat you. <laughs> Best thing to do is kill it while it's a baby monster. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> so many people are, are waiting for the circumstances to be right. God's waiting for the stances to be right. He's waiting for you to get to a place in your life where you say, that thing is not going to be in my life anymore. That thing has taunted my family. That thing has plagued my children. You are not going to plague my children anymore. If I die, I die, but I'm not staying here. And there's something about courage that defies fear and wins the battle. I really do believe that this is the time 
for first of all, for each of us to make sure that we're killing the lion and the bear. I believe there are things in our lives that have taunted us, and we've just like, we just factored them in to our life business. We're like, oh, we just have some losses, and that's the way it is. And the Lord's saying, stop having losses and protect the sheep that no one cares about. And when you do, I'll let you be ahead of my people. It's really important that we have private victories. And then when we get a public giant, we're going to be ready for it because we've been practicing in a place that no one cares about. I'm just going to give you seven quick attributes. I'll just read them of courage. Courage refuses to give up long after everyone has gone home. Number two, when people insist they can't change, courage says you're better than that. Number three, courage refuses to take the temperature of the crowd to determine which virtues are in vogue. Number four, when the voice of reason stutters and common sense stammers, courage utters a clarion clear call. Number five, when vicious voices shout courage down, it only makes it more determined to stand up straight. Number six, when fear says dim the lights, Courage says, time to rise and shine. Number seven, sometimes courage doesn't roar at all, but it's the quiet voice at the end of the night that says, we will try again tomorrow. You can't conquer what you won't confront. I really believe, this is 2018. Eight is the number of new beginnings. And I'm like, how about now? How about here? I don't care how old you are, you're eight or you're 80. If you have a giant that's still taunting you in your land, why not kill it? I believe that David could have thrown that rock backwards because I believe that that was the first giant ever slain in the spirit. Do you know that David knocked him out with a rock, but you know how he killed Goliath? He took Goliath's sword and he cut his head off. Do you know that David never fought with a rock after that? Look it up. He fought with the sword of Goliath. You know why? Because when you stand against Goliath, then the thing that was against you will be for you. I think there's a verse for it. I think it says something like this. When you're weak, God is strong, and, God is perf- and, you're, and you're, God's strength is perfected in your weakness. How many of you know, when you finally get the courage, and I didn't say fearless, you finally get the courage to take on that giant, the thing that was your greatest weakness will become your strength. You'll become famous for the thing that terrified you. I was thinking about Brian Johnson because he's sitting here this morning. And he's thinking about, the, you know, I heard him, I've heard him share now several times the message of what happened during his nervous breakdown and how he began to sing over himself, how he began to break out in song even though he was still anxious and feeling terrified. He just did the right thing. And, I, and the, the crazy thing is, Brian's sitting right here and he's sharing his testimony of what he did when he was weak, what he did when he was afraid, how he moved slowly into wholeness. And you know what was happening? The thing that was against him, people were getting free all over the auditorium. People were getting free online. Why? The, the weapon that was used to terrify him was the weapon he grabbed a hold of and said, now I'm going to take you on with the weapon you tried to get me with. And I'm telling you, like, maybe you were an alcoholic. You know what? 
first of all, I don't believe that you're an alcoholic. I just believe there's people who drink too much because I believe that you aren't your sin. I don't like to call people something they can't get out of because God says you're a son of God. I don't like to give people the title of a dysfunction because that's not who you are. But let me say this, if you struggle with alcoholism your entire life and the Lord sets you free, how many of you know there's lots of alcoholics getting free through your ministry? Why? Because the thing that was sent to kill you is the thing that you use for a sword. I was addicted to pornography. Okay, guess how many people are gonna go, who are gonna live in freedom because you got free. See, your victory is their victory. You take your bear out, you take your lion out, the, the, the bear and the lion, the thing that messed with your flock, you finally say, you will not mess with my flock again. And God goes, now you're ready to help other people with their flock. I'm telling you, the thing in this room that you say, even in your mind while I'm talking right now, I bet you there's 300 people in here are saying, I have this thing. He doesn't know how big it is in my life. Yeah, but I know how big he is in your life. And I understand what it is to live with stuff that's, that, that terrifies you and you have to get past it. And when you get past it, your victory becomes the people's victory. Would you stand, please? I'm going to pray for y'all. Let's come to that. And you're going to assume the position. If you're watching by Bethel TV, this is the position. This is like, give me the barrel. <laughs> it's like, right? Not the teaspoon. This is not the position. Like, give me, feed me with the teaspoon. It's like, put on your big boy, big girl pants and take on the barrel. Lord, I bless your people right now. I bless your people. I pray, God, that you would give them pressed down, shaken together, running out all over, and this would be called the year of victory. Last year was the year of breakthrough. This year is the year of victory. This is the year where we take our giants down. This is the year when we say, you will not taunt the army of the living God. You will not taunt, taunt my family, the Valentin family, the Johnson family, whatever your last name is. You, you will not taunt my family any longer. It stops today. It stops right here. If I die, I die, but I'm going to take you out. That's the last thing I do. You're, going, you're out of my family this year. Pornography, you're out of my family. Whatever it is, homosexuality, you're out of my family lineage. Whatever it is, poverty, small thinking, anxiety, whatever it is, you're, you're out of my, you are done in this family. You are eradicated from this home. Last year I had a breakthrough, this year I have a victory. This is the year of victory. And I release this over you. You go from being a victim to being a victor. That's who you are in Jesus' name. And whatever that thing has been in your whole life, it is gone this year, like 2018. You leave here, you should run to the battle. Don't think about it anymore. Just say, Chris is right. And while you're running, just say, Chris is right, Chris is right. Chris is right. Don't think about anything else. Like, Chris is a great prophet. He's right. He's, even if he's not, but he's right right now. Don't think about anything else. And just go after that thing in your life. When you leave here, how many times have you been anointed on Sunday, and by Monday, you've siphoned it off through fear? How many know, if you just make a, a declaration right now, like, this is my year. No matter how I feel when I wake up tomorrow, come on, say it. No matter how I feel when I wake up tomorrow, that giant is being eradicated from my lineage. In Jesus' name, I'm going after that thing. I'm going to find freedom and abundance, both me and my family and the body of Christ. Even my neighbors 
are going to be blessed by my victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we go, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. This weekly podcast is now being translated in several languages. Visit podcasts.ibethel.org.